So we're starting a series on the book of Daniel. Uh, it's going to call, be called Babylon USA or Babylon in your backyard. You know, I always like giving two titles to everything, but Babylon USA is the normal title, but Backyard Babylon is more of the informal uh, title. But uh, today, in starting that, we're really not going to dive too much into the book of Daniel. We're going to talk about Babylon, the historic city of Babylon, the city uh, roughly 50 miles from modern-day Baghdad. Anyone here been around Baghdad before? We got one. Anyone else? Two. Uh, yeah, we've had many of our brothers and sisters have spent significant time in Baghdad since 9-11 or even actually since 1990, fall of 90, right? That was the first Gulf War. But um, that is Babylon, and Babylon figures throughout the world of the Bible and through the entirety of the early church, and Babylon is actually a reality. It's a meme. It's a trope. It's it, that we live in, act in, uh, eat in. Uh, we swim in Babylon right now, metaphorically speaking. We swim in Babylon uh, in, uh, contextually. This is, we don't talk about Babylon much, but one aspect of following Jesus is acknowledging the water we swim in. If, if, if we're, whatever nation you grow up in, wherever your primary place of living, whatever a people group you identify with, all of us have this mandate to see where is Babylon in our midst. And there's a temptation for many people to use the idea of Babylon as a way of pointing fingers at others. Pointing fingers and saying, uh, this Hollywood Babylon, this your Babylon, your Babylon, I'm you know the city of God, I'm uh, the holy, I'm part of the good guys, you're the bad guys. So we, we're tempted in throughout, uh, even in American Christendom, and this goes back long before America was even an idea, is the idea of you finger pointing and calling out Babylon instead of acknowledging the Babylon in your midst. So the idea of Daniel, looking at Daniel, is to understand what are the Babylon protocols. What I mean by Babylon protocols is how do we respond, how do we live, what is our operating system if we come to the point of acknowledging Babylon in our midst. So uh, going uh, a little bit of an excursion. Anyone seen the movie War Games? War games, and I actually talked to Eric uh, Schumacher, and he just uh, watched it last week. I want to give a little spoiler alert, so tune out for the next 60 seconds if you don't want to ruin the movie, but I figure since it came out in, what, 82, that it should be fair game. But this is before the internet when you had to dial in to specific bulletin boards and using a phone and let your computer take a long time just to get text transmitted back. And I was an early adopter. Actually, when War Games came out, I had a all-you-can-eat CompuServe account. And I would dial into a remote BBS called Modem Mania locally, and I was kind of an Apple II hacker or whatever, you know. Uh, and watching that whole idea of war games is there's a young man who's trying to hack into a video game company, and he actually hacks into the Department of Defense and inadvertently takes over uh, what he thinks is a nuclear war uh, simulation nuclear war simulation, but actually he's controlling the computers. And the idea is he almost, 
like hacking into the system almost starts a war that leads to the, the death of the majority of the planet. And the game was called Global Thermonuclear War. So towards the end of this game, uh, the computer is rapid gaming out all the scenarios trying to find a way to win at this game of war. And it gets kind of preachy here, but it's a, it comes to one of my favorite phrases that I like to think when I think about Babylon and I think of how the world functions. And at the end, see, everyone loses all the time. And then uh, the computer voice, which I love, it was like, it doesn't sound like Siri or whatever voice you have on your phone. It's like, shall we play our game? He goes, but then at the end, the conclusion the computer comes to, and the hope is all the people that watch the movie coming to it is, the only way to win is not to play. The only way to win is not to play. And the idea is there's no winners at certain games. In playing certain games is the guarantee of defeat. Now we live in a world where people by default are reactive. And that's kind of from our animal roots. The idea of reactivity is when the most primitive parts of our brain respond because we think a wolf is going to eat us. You know, uh, the amygdala is triggered and we go into life preservation mode and we kind of check our humanity at the door and the amygdala is really helpful because what if a wolf was after you and you needed to climb a tree? You need that adrenaline, you need that power, you need to shut off all systems and devote all your energy to preserving your life. But we have nations of people in the world since the history of the world began who collectively are living out of their amygdalas. They're you know, we have the collective unconscious that Jung talked about. I would say nations express the collective amygdala where it's fight or flee and we're always on alert. And we don't, as nations and people groups, uh, in the pursuit of power, we don't embrace a story. We embrace a very simple operating system that is part of the game that we should understand the answer is the only way to win is not to play. And that game is empire, or that game is Babylon. And we, in the vineyard, we talk a lot about the kingdom of God, not just as like the kingdom of God is, you know, where this unicorn rainbows and marshmallow ice cream future where everyone is in pure bliss. The kingdom of God is the strong and robust rule of the goodness and kindness and creativity of God infusing every bit of our lives till all hate is burned away. Entropy is no more. Creativity is unleashed. There's nothing but hospitality and curiosity in our human interactions. This idea that where Babylon is the game. Babylon is the operating system of empire and every nation in the world plays the Babylon game. Now, we've in, uh, in the church, oftentimes Babylon, uh, the church in particular, the Western church, well, actually, in history, anytime you read of atrocities committed by the church, anytime you read, like, uh, read about uh, whether it's been covering up sex abuse scandals or the Crusades, the Crusades, I would say all those were birthed from Babylon. They were not birthed from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what happens is I believe we live in a culture where most people do not embrace the idea that uh, in the Babylon game, the only way to win 
is not to play. In the church right now, historically, there, there's a book I just uh, became apprised of. Uh, there's, there's a theology that there's been many versions of this throughout history. It's called the Seven Mountain Theology. And the idea is we are called to conquer Babylon and take over all the mountains of cultural influence, like government, big business and corporations, uh, the arts. And the idea is we need to forcefully take over these realms and then God's kingdom is here. But when you have seven mountains, like the seven mountains of Babylon described later on in the book of Daniel, you actually form eight valleys. And out of the eight valleys, you have the Beatitudes that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Starts out with, blessed are the poor in spirit. So if we don't play the conquer the seven mountains game, we revel in the valleys because that is where the soil is most fertile to sprout the kingdom. You can't farm on a mountaintop. If it's high enough, it's probably just snow-capped. You can't farm on the mountaintop. But in the valleys, all the minerals, all the riches of the kingdom come down the mountain to the valleys. And while people want to conquer the mountain, people want to climb Everest, if you stay up there, you will die. You will have the great accomplishment of being on top of Everest, but you will have no food to eat without the fruit of the valley. And the fruit that feeds the Christian life is a valley fruit. It's engaging suffering. The fruit that feeds the Christian life is identifying with the oppressed or being one of the oppressed. And Jesus said it is so hard for someone of power and privilege and wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's so hard. It's like a camel going through the eye of the needle. And he said, because there is, if you live on the mountaintop, and you revel in the mountaintop while maybe the valley people are bringing food up for you to eat, you don't empathize with the people in the valley. But in that same passage in Matthew where it says uh, the camel, uh, a rich man entering the kingdom of God, means a camel, is like a camel going through the eye of the needle, but with God all things are possible, which means God invites everyone with power and privilege to experience a paranormal experience where even though you were born on the mountaintop, you can experience the kingdom. But it is a paranormal experience. So everyone here who has enjoyed food security, everyone here that has enjoyed housing security, everyone here that has had access to health care, we are mountaintop people. We are camels. And I would say because our nation has kind of been the, one of the most powerful nations in world history, uh, a, the majority of the nation is a nation of camels. Even though there's people, there's, we have super camels, and we have uber camels, and then we have camel camels, but we are mostly a nation of camels because even, even the poorest of the poor often have access to clean water. So... If you are here today and you resonate with the story of Jesus, you are living proof of a paranormal experience, paranormal activity in the real, all right? Because that's strange. There, there's ideologies that teach if you are financially prosperous, it must be because you're following God. And uh, my only answer to that is I have this biblical reference to give you, the Bible. Just open up your Bible anywhere and you'll find it's part of a storyline that the power and privilege is not indicative of following Jesus. In fact, the best, quickest way to power and privilege is to embrace the spirit of Babylon. 
So talking about our Babylon protocols. Uh, Babylon has one tool. Babylon has one tool. It's violence. And violence has countless manifestations. There's, there's literal violence. There's passive violence. There's the abuse of uh, over-violence. There's uh, the abuse of deprivation. There's, and then deprivation holding back life-giving resources. And then within the abuse of deprivation, there's active def deprivation and there's passive deprivation. There's people that actively work to ensure that they can hold on to amount of things more than is even legally allowed at the expense of depriving other people. There's people that engage in illegal business practices and monopolies in attempts to lead to greater enrichment in depriving the functionality of other people employers in the world. And passive, that's active deprivation. Passive deprivation is when we live off the fruits of people living that way. When we live off the fruits of passive deprivation without acknowledging it and working against it, we are living by the Babylon operating system. When we need to embrace the Babylon protocols of the kingdom described in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, going back to Babylon, Babylon had kind of two phases, all right? Just going really quickly, uh, the code of Hammurabi, did I say that right? Hammurab, Hammurabi? I mean, on YouTube it's pronounced like 10 different ways. I was trying to find it, so I guess we don't have any recordings from that time. But basically, uh, ancient Mesopotamia evolved into the first iteration of Babylon. And uh, Hammurabi kind of founded it, it prospered, wrote down the first law, came up with the eye for the eye, a tooth for a tooth that really influenced uh, the Torah later on, and then Jesus completely subverted later on with nonviolence, if you uh, read what he says about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But when he died, there was, no, uh, there was no adequate leader that could preserve Babylon, but Babylon made a comeback. And essentially, the entirety virtually, well, actually, I'd say the entirety indirectly or directly, in the majority directly of the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, address the threat of Babylon because people live according to the rules of Babylon. If you embrace the operating system of Babylon, I'm going to let Babylon destroy you. The, and what happened is the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, and at this point, you know, uh, Israel... Uh, the ten tribes kind of self-annihilated to the point they were destroyed and assimilated by the Assyrians. And you have this minority left in Judah, who's the remainder of Israel, and they're brought into captivity of Babylon when Jehoiakim was king. Okay, and this is around, uh, people debate what, how they date. Is it 587 B.C., 588 B.C., or 586 B.C.? Because it didn't happen all at once, as many wars do. But in 588 B.C., uh, Nebuchadnezzar invades Babylon. This is, be, this is uh, referred to in the very first couple verses, but about 587 BC, historic fact, Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem, and he takes the power, the powerful people and the privileged people. He doesn't just take working class Israelites, 
When he, the first element of the captivity is he just took all the people that enjoyed power and privilege, of which Daniel and three of his friends are representative of the powered and the privileged in Israel. Now, something to note about it is what did the prophets speak to Israel about before Israel went to exile? And a lot of people try to figure out this arcane Bible code of how you know the prophets, Daniel, and Revelation, they try to see how it speaks to the people we perceive as enemies to us right now and how we're the good guys. When really the prophets write to either inspire hope to the oppressed or to identify to the people of God how they are actually being oppressors. And the majority of the prophets is identifying the self-proclaimed people of God as in fact being the oppressors. And in a way, the Babylonian captivity of the people of Israel was giving them the reign that they were already living out. It was giving them the reign that they were all living out. The most common issues, the, the metaphor for Israel is you are unfaithful. Israel is a whore. You're cheating on God. And a lot of people don't get metaphors. Uh, a lot of people don't cling to abstract thinking. We have whole uh, uh, denominations of Christianity, in particular in America, whose major stand is to not deal with metaphors and try to narrow things down to one literal interpretation that, affect, that calls out someone else and lets us get off scot-free. You know, uh, in the, when we went to the Gulf War, there's a book called out, created called The Rise of Babylon, and basically saying uh, Saddam Hussein was the new leader of Babylon, and Babylon is actually Iraq, and so we're going to war against the whore of Babylon, and everything we're doing is good and righteous. You know, it, it was weird. We, we allied with one nation with a lot of corruption against their oppression of another corrupt nation. Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, however you want to describe it. So we're basically two nations that engage in completely destructive practices to their people, and we took sides calling one Babylon. But when the Bible talks about Babylon, we've got to read how Babylon is described. And Babylon is described, the most repeated Babylonian tropes in the Old Testament is neglect of the fatherless and the widow, the alien and the stranger. In the ger, the word for alien and stranger, the word ger, the Hebrew word ger is best translated immigrant and refugee. Immigrant and refugee. And the idea being is people don't leave home unless they need to get away from home because of deprivation or danger. People do not leave home unless they need to get away from home because of deprivation or danger. And the idea was people were leaving home because of deprivation and danger, attempting to enter the promised land, the milk of honey, and the people of Israel did not practice the welcome of God. And they are called out. And they're called out for people that have been orphaned and widows. I mean, the Bible had the most genius welfare system in the Jewish Torah. And it was brilliant. It was even meant to be like if you lost everything, there was no such thing in God's plan for Israel's multi-generational poverty. Every 70 years, everyone got a clean slate and they got their land back that they lost because of financial setback. God created a system where there would never be multi-generational poverty. 
and hence never be multi-generational profiting off of poverty. There would there wouldn't be people that would accrue wealth because of generations of loss of other people, and there would be no one that accrued poverty and ended to the endless, unsinkable abyss of poverty because it only lasted a generation. And the big idea of Israel, the year of Jubilee, the, the, one of the most intricate commanded parties of God was a year of not working and celebrating and banqueting, but the price of that year of banqueting was debt forgiveness, so Israel never celebrated it. In fact, Israel went to captivity enough years to make up for their lack of practice of Jubilee. They're actually, uh, Israel's literal exile was the amount of years of Jubilee. Because they were living like Babylon, they were made to be Babylon. And their rich people and influencers were the first to be played, taken captive. So Daniel would have been a part of a system, the elite of Israel, that was there and not practicing Jubilee. Now, Daniel's like a hero of mine, by the way. Daniel's a hero of mine. But what we don't hit at is if you read all the prophets and you read the description of Daniel and his peeps, is they were the guys winning at the no jubilee game to begin with. And they are the first to go into captivity. Let me read the beginning of Daniel here. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 2, and that's all the Daniel you're going to get today. It was the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon declared war on Jerusalem and besieged the city. The master handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the furnishings from the temple of God. Nebuchadnezzar took the king and furnishings to the country of Babylon, the ancient Shinar, and he put the furnishings in the sacred treasury. Now let me just, the sacred treasury was in the temple. Nebuchadnezzar was known for many things. He claimed to have been the architect of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. We don't know if he had, most people think he wasn't, but he took credit for it, which that's another part of the Babylon protocols, uh, stealing intellectual property. But uh, the part of Babylon is he took the implements, the painstakingly created symbols of worship of the God of the vulnerable, the symbols of the worship of the God who favors the alien, stranger, fatherless, and the widow were taken into a temple. Now, what does not mention is what temple that was. But from history and archaeological discovery, we know it was a temple devoted to the god Marduk. Now, if you were listening a few Sundays ago, we talked about uh, how hard it is to see God. And we talk about Hagar, who is exiled, interestingly enough, by Abraham. It's a picture of the people of God, Abraham, abusing someone and sending the person into exile. And Hagar see, has an encounter with the provision of God. And instead of Marduk, who you have to appease or he's going to kill you, Hagar is miraculously provided nourishment and safety for her and her child by the God. And she takes away... What Marduk is known for is the God who sees and may destroy you and gives it to the God who sees and will feed you. So the glory of Marduk was that he sees you and she gave that to the glory of the God of Abraham. And it's interesting, the first person in the scriptural narrative who actually gives God a name 
is Hagar, and she names him after the attribute that was claimed by the ruling god of every other nation in ancient Mesopotamia. So, dealing with that, Nebuchadnezzar built this lavish temple to Marduk and took the symbols of Yahweh worship for the people of Israel and put them into a temple worshiping Marduk, which was actually a reality check because in the practice Israel that the prophets warned them about, they were actively worshiping Marduk. Or, or Baal is another kind of, there's a big overlap there with Baal or Baal or whatever in Marduk. They were technically practicing the operating system of Marduk worship while claiming the personhood of God. And the natural fruit of that is you're Babylonians, let's go to Babylon. And to add to that is they practice a, a, a kind of foreign policy that we have practiced for years and has really bit us in the rear end as a nation. And that idea is the enemy of our enemy is our friend. For instance, you know, we spent years in the 80s arming the Taliban with our weapons against Russia because we were having a proxy war with Russia. And what happened is we have countless dead across the board, but countless dead of, of sons and daughters of America who were killed by American weapons that were furnished to a people based on the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we literally even had, uh, we had pictures of, uh, I'm trying to remember, first head of Homeland Security. What was his name? Well, anyway, shaking hands with Saddam Hussein. Uh, so we, that was Iran, excuse me, in Iraq, but anyway. Well, Iraq was fighting against Iran, and the Taliban was in Afghanistan. I'm mixing up my atrocities here. Please excuse me. That's a little bit of dyslexia. But both uh, uh, Iran versus Iraq and uh, the battles with the Taliban in Afghanistan versus uh, Russia and then uh, Iraq versus another oppressive nation in, who gave us good deals on oil. So we've had, in all three cases, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In one case, the leading, in Iran, the leading supplier of arms, initially at least, was us. And this is, a, listen, this is a global historic protocol, is the enemy, my enemy, is my friend. Well, Israel made treaties with one enemy who they thought would protect them from another enemy. And what their treaties, their alliances, and often that would be with the king, like Solomon, married all these women. And I'll just be a little crass here. Like, yet these marriages of Solomon, a lot of these people he probably never meant. I used to think in my little adolescent mind, well, how do you make time for physical intimacy with every person. He must have had a calendar. And then as I get older, I realize, where did he get that kind of energy? <laughs> you know, but it was really, these were alliances made to seal the deal that I, you, my enemy, are the enemy of me and my enemy, so you are my friend. And the fruition of Solomon's betrayal went on, nation, uh, king after king after king, to the point where they provoked a more powerful nation to take them over because of their alliances with other nations. So Israel, when God, all these prophecies the prophets made to say the stars will fall from the sky, they would use this cosmic imagery, and you always want to look at how were the prophecies of the prophets fulfilled, and that helps us how to understand apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation. So when the stars fell from the sky, we, we, we never had a sun 
fallen to the earth. But we did have all the rulers of Israel and the other nations all have fallen. And the stars in the sky were the rulers of empire. And for Israel, their stars fell from the sky. So this idea that living by the Babylon protocols means you'll eventually you become Babylon. And what I would argue today, that there is no nation in this world that is not Babylon. It's very easy in America to look at, you know, uh, what uh, we've done in our past. And I, I've taken it upon myself. I believe it's my job to be an expert American. You know, I have done, and I've tried to be an expert Ohio guy. In fact, I've read about 10 books on Ohio history. Uh, one of the most influential for me was Alan Eckhart's Dark River of Blood, when we started violating all our treaties to go over, which led to kind of the genocide of the majority of the native peoples. Not because I think America is uniquely a blood-soaked place. I, it, frankly, there's no square inch of inhabited planet that isn't soaked with the blood of someone else unjustly. I, I can po you can point to any nation, but in my limited brain pan, I'm just going to know about the Babylon in my backyard. And it's very easy to point out, um, I'm thinking of the atrocities of China's attempts to wipe out the Uyghur people group which people need to know about, need to speak against, in the same way we spoke, should speak against any Holocaust. But we need to embrace the Holocaust in our backyard. We need to know our history as well. We were taught a history uh, recently. This is like one of the first years that there was a massive national acknowledgement of the uh, Tulsa massacre. The Tulsa massacre... Uh, is where the most, uh, in the Tulsa Massacre, we had the most successful black community in the history of the United States of America that had built so much wealth that if that area of Tulsa was not firebombed and annihilated, it'd be one of the wealthiest hotbeds rivaling the Wall Street of today. We would have two Wall Streets, not one Wall Street. But we literally, the United States military was deployed and dropped, did, dropped firebombs on our ground, and literally, it's been illegal in certain states to include this in the curriculum. Now, I'm, I don't hate America. I, don't, I love America. And listen, there is a massacre in every nation in the world. Every nation in the world is a massacre. So I'm, I, I, I say this about the globe, but I want to know about my backyard. And that's the same thing, like, if you're married, you know what, you should always be better if knowing your own sins and maybe a less of an expert of knowing the sins of your spouse. If you want to destroy your marriage, be an expert of how your spouse is broken and be oblivious to how you are broken. Relationships don't focus when you are an expert to the sins of others and you are numb to your own sin. In the same way, civil society does not work unless we are experts of our own brokenness before we're experts of the brokenness of others. So whether it's marriage or geopolitics, there's a sense of humility. But the spirit of Babylon is the opposite. And the way we're Babylon is we I, I went to a Christian school that I heard about all these atrocities of Native Americans torturing uh, uh, American troops that had violated treaties. All right, and it was gruesome and awful. I didn't ever hear of the idea of uh, people, bounty hunters being paid off and how many scalps of Indians they brought to the government. 
you know, uh, it, so I heard this myopic history where Babylon was always on the outside, not on the inside. Friends, when we read Daniel, we need to know that, you know, you know the biggest difference of Babylon in us, in our backyard, is there's no, that I know of, and we may discover so many cuneiform documents have been discovered regarding the history of Babylon. At one point, the only reference that people knew that Babylon ever existed was in the Bible. But those days are gone because uh, we're better at uh, uncovering the hidden history of the world. But there's nothing that seems to hold a candle to the massacre of Tulsa that I've seen in Babylonian history to this point. So not only could we identify as Babylon, I think humans as a whole have out-Babylon Babylon. Babylon did not top out in their expression. There's been Babylon, Babylon 2.0, Babylon 3.0. There's been continuous software upgrades to the software of Babylon, and Babylon has gotten more insidious to the point where Babylon can happen by remote control. Babylon, people are able to make policy decisions in comfortable rooms that bring Babylon on such a big scale. And during all this time, there was an emerging trope in America to refer to the arts as Babylon. In, in a, especially with the emergence of TV and the growth of Hollywood, there became a term synonymous with Hollywood among conservative thinking people like myself called Hollywood Babylon. In the way we excluded ourselves of Babylon is we, we narrowed the focus of Babylon to people who uh, would show a lot of skin. We narrowed the focus of Babylon to Marilyn Monroe. We narrowed, we said uh, uh, the exploitation, if you look at the history of Hollywood prior to Me Too, is the history of Hollywood has been the exploitation of women. I was just watching an interview with Sharon Stone describing the bullying on the set of Basic Instinct where she did not know they had certain camera angles meant to film certain private parts to be on the big screen. And then it was on the big screen and she was bullied and told her career is over if she pushes back against that. Now there's a new version of Basic Instinct that has no edits and she's come forwards talking again about how she was bullied. And, but in the past we would have churches that would point out Sharon Stone and talk about Hollywood Babylon, when really the Babylon was a structure that commoditized and abused and formed Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone was not Hollywood Babylon. The systems of human exploitation were Babylon. And by the way, those systems have existed in the American church. System that, systems that do not read the cultural context into certain passages of Ephesians and Timothy and ignore all the egalitarian passages to put women in their place have created systems of recalcitrant abuse of women. Uh, just recently, Russell Moore, who was head of the Southern Baptist Church, who resigned, his emails had been leaked, calling out systems of abuse that he was trying to dismantle and how he felt harassed and his family was, this is the head of the church, his family threatened because he was trying to overthrow policies that made people vulnerable to sexual abuse. So, in that context, even we have churches that eat, breathe, drink, sweat Babylon. In this tent, I was just talking to one of the most precious people I've ever met, 
who was soaked in this morning, who was soaked in Babylon, who received the most insidious things in the life-destroying storyline where a pastor tried to imprint on their life, they're still here. Mir miraculous work. So as we read Babylon, not because I hate America, but because I, I want to love the whole world, is I want to talk about what it means to be faithful in Babylon. And what's interesting is if you, as we look at Daniel, you'll notice all the ways the stories teach us to be faithful in Babylon were most perfectly lived out by Jesus. All the ways of to be faithful, and it wasn't like the seven mountain mandate says we're going to conquer Babylon. You know what? The faithful never conquered Babylon. The faithful were imprisoned by Babylon, and they subverted Babylon by serving and praying for Babylon, not annihilating and going to war against Babylon. They served in Babylon. We are not to go conquerors because the only way to win in the Babylon game is not to play. And we have whole theologies that say we got to beat Babylon at their own game. And Jesus is like, that is such a boring, pathetic game. And it's only going to bite you in the rear end. Just read the Bible I gave you. It doesn't work. So I want to read a closing verse of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote a verse of how to live in Babylon. And then the book of Daniel is like the most clear example of that verse lived out. So I'm going to read this uh, introductory verse in Jeremiah to Babylon. We get the worship folks come up. He says, in Babylon here, guys, make yourselves at home there. Work for the country's welfare. Work for the country's welfare. What's it look like to be concerned of everyone's welfare, including the people you perceive as the enemy? Work for the welfare of your enemies is another way we could do this. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon, things will go for well for you. When we are influencers of justice, kindness, feeding, welcome, refuge, and hospitality, when we express that and we can influence a nation towards that kind of kindness by service, not by battle, we can live like Jesus did. And we are all as a church in Babylon, wherever your Babylon is, you're in Babylon until Christ returns, we can be the faithful people of Babylon. And the way Jesus demonstrated, the can we stand, guys? The ultimate expression of Jesus saying the only way to win is not to play. He took the Passover feast, all right? And he did not rehearse, uh, he did not rehearse the uh, spirit of death that took the firstborn of Egypt. He rehearsed the last meal they had and said, I'm the firstborn son that's going to die. He rehearsed the first, the, the meal, the Passover meal, instead of the enemies of Israel dying, he remixed Passover to say, we're celebrating that I'm going to die on behalf of my enemies. And he took the cup and said, this cup is, the, took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant. Read the new anti-Babylon, anti-Rome, anti-whatever empire you want to put in its place system. The, in the cup, in the bread, the self-sacrifice of Christ is the suffering operating system that we are empowered. And you know what? If we get to be that people, it will go well from us. You know, have you ever seen a happy oppressor? 
Have you ever seen any of the people who we identify as enemies of humanity on the news? Do they ever look truly joyful, truly happy? So what the oppressors are living in a hell of their own making, and hell is locked from the inside. But we're going to take the bread and the cup and pledge our allegiance to not play the game. Amen? I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, my one and only king. I will serve my nation, although it is Babylon, showing kindness to my enemies, and eschewing violence of every kind. As I share in this communion meal, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to help me provide banqueting places for all who suffer. Make me a meal provider for the fatherless and the widow and the alien and the stranger. That doesn't have a ring to it, does it? <laughs> make, me a uh, make me a meal preparer for my enemy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bottoms up. So as we begin to worship, I wanna, we have people here to pray for you. And listen, a lot of you have been dealt blows of Babylon. A great deal of you, for some reason, this church seems to be like the pool filter that gathers all the people who've been chewed up and destroyed by other churches. You know, and people are giving Jesus maybe one last chance. They're willing to let people, like, get back to the actual Jesus and not the Babylonian parody of Jesus. If you have been injured, either at Central Vineyard or another church, if you have been on the receiving end of Babylon... We want to pray for you. And if you've been a participant in the operating system of Babylon, we want to pray for you. There's power in confessing the condition of your inner self to another person and having them physically demonstrate you mercy by praying for you. Lord bless you.